Millie's Last Waltz by Terence Padley. For one joyous moment, she showed us what she was once like. Look what I've found, my wife Joan called from our backyard one Friday on my return from work. I hastened down the side stairs by the side of our house. At the bottom was one of the oldest, saddest little dogs I had ever seen. The only breeding I could discern was a touch of dashhound in the stubby legs and some spaniel in the droopy ears. The coat on its thin body was black, its sharp muzzle streaked with grey. Misty brown eyes wore a where-am-I expression. I could understand this. Our Sydney house is on a steep, rocky hillside. Access to our backyard is via stone steps so narrow that a mountain goat would seek something easier. What I could not comprehend was how on earth the dog had climbed them. Don't touch it, Joan warned as I bent to take a closer look. Its skin is awful. She was not exaggerating. On bald pink patches on the dog's back, fleas were scurrying about their business of tormenting it. It hasn't come from a dog show, I agreed, noticing the animal was female. Smells, too. Joan went into the house and returned with a bowl containing pieces of steak that were to have been my dinner. The dog immediately stepped into the bowl. That was when we learnt she was half blind. By pushing her nose into the food, we persuaded the visitor to eat a few morsels. Then she stood motionless, looking at us. What should we do now, I asked. We'll take her in until we find her owner, Joan decided. I agreed, but reluctantly. I've had a long line of dogs. The last was Mitch, a lovable mongrel who grew up with our two kids and stayed for 17 years before dying. He was such a hard act to follow I had vowed never to replace him. We decided our guest would be safer in the house than wandering our yard with its cliff-like fringes. Joan covered our laundry floor with newspapers and found a rug to serve as a bed. The dog ignored this. Whenever we checked on her, she was plodding in tight circles. She's not too bright, Joan said. Let's call her Silly Millie. About midnight, another visit found Millie asleep at last in a corner. Lying in bed that night, I wondered about the dog. Had she been mistreated? Why was she so listless and miserable? She seems tired of life, I concluded, as I drifted to sleep. Next day, we scanned the lost and found columns of the papers. Several dogs were sought in the area, but none resembled Millie. Let's ask the neighbours, Joan suggested. Before we could take Millie on a neighbourhood tour, we had to get rid of her fleas. She stood trembling in our laundry tub while we bathed her with insecticidal shampoo. Then she fell asleep under my arm as we door-knocked houses and questioned kids playing in the street. Nobody had seen her before. I put a card on our supermarket community notice board that afternoon. No one rang. Next Monday, I placed an ad in the local paper. Still nothing. Finally, we had to face an unpalatable fact. Millie could never have managed those steps on her own, Joan said. Someone dumped her. Knowing Millie was helpless, we decided to keep her at least until we could find her a home. We took her to a vet who estimated her age at about ten. Back home, Joan armed herself with powder, brushes and more shampoo and set about tackling Millie's skin problems. This took care of Millie's smell, but I didn't want her living in the laundry so I draped Hessian over metal tubing to make a shelter for her in the yard, which I fenced with chicken wire. I did not want her to fall down the cliffs fringing our property. 
To give Millie a break from the yard, I took her for a walk each evening. I found that she stopped abruptly every twenty steps or so, and I had to yank her lead to get her moving again. Walking Millie is no fun, I grumbled one day. Walking is good for her, Joan replied, and you. Slowly, Millie's physical condition improved. She showed more interest in food, put on weight, and her coat began to grow back. With some respectability restored, we let her spend the evenings in our lounge room, dozing in a basket, or plodding through the house on journeys of discovery. She even began to show signs of personality. She learnt where we kept chocolate biscuits, and often sat in front of the cupboard until Joan gave her one. And Millie clearly looked forward to her walks. When I approached her with her lead at the appropriate time each day, her tail shivered, Millie's equivalent of wagging, and she pricked her ears. Soon she could walk a hundred metres or more without stopping. Mostly, however, Millie remained distant and spiritless. When we took her to the beach, she fell into furrows and blinked myopically at the water. On a picnic, she slept the entire day under a chair. I found myself wishing she would do something, fetch a stick, chase a bird, anything. She did not even have a bark to spice her character. Apart from snuffling noises when asleep, she was mute. Yet she might have been lively once, and someone must have fed and cared for her. Joan theorised that she had belonged to an elderly person who had died or gone to hospital, and heartless relatives had dumped her on us. One night, while I was watching TV, Millie surprised me. Rising up on her spindly hind legs, she put her paws on my knee and looked up expectantly. I did nothing, then watched astonished as after a few moments' hesitation, she climbed painfully onto my lap with an old lady's trembling determination. She circled a couple of times and plumped down with a sigh. Look at that, Joan said, amazed. There had been precious little return for our investment of time and money in Millie, so I was pleased by this small display of affection. I let her stay on my lap and patted her. By the time Millie had been with us for ten months, she had become part of my daily routine and I began to look forward to our walks. I appreciated being close to the flowers and trees in our suburb and making new acquaintances along the way. Millie especially seemed to like tottering down a grassy slope in a nearby park. Joan, who joined us for walks at weekends, claimed Millie enjoyed feeling the wind rippling through her hair. My final capitulation came when a dog-loving neighbour offered to take her off our hands. I thought about it long and hard before refusing. Then I knew for sure we had ourselves another dog. Millie's eyesight remained a problem. Once she stepped through the railings of our internal spiral staircase and fell with a sickening thud to the floor of the rumpus room. She was only winded, but I put wire netting barriers on the stairs. With winter looming, Joan bought Millie a warm kennel and a coat to wear at night. The coat might give her self-respect, she said. I laughed when I saw it. It was crimson, festooned with silver spangles and stars. It's more likely to make her think she's Liberace, I said. One morning when I went to check on Millie before leaving for work, she had gone. I searched the yard and lane below to no avail. I called Joan. I can't believe she could have gone down those steps, I said. Suddenly, for two people who never wanted the dog in the first place, we were devastated. I felt like we had lost a child. We searched surrounding streets and quizzed neighbours. No one had seen Millie. 
For five days, before and after work, we hunted for her. At nights, I lay anguished, wondering where she was and whether she was hungry or in pain. On the sixth day, Joan heard that people living a block away were on holiday. Perhaps Millie had got lost and ended up in their garden. It was a long shot, but we hurried there anyway. While I checked the front garden, Joan looked round the back. Over here, she yelled. Millie was curled under a tree, emaciated, dehydrated, but miraculously alive. Her tail trembled in greeting when I scooped her up. I feel so relieved, Joan said tearfully. I knew what she meant. Three weeks later, I was woken in the small hours by yelps. I had never heard Millie yelp, but it had to be her. I shook Joan. I think Millie's in trouble, I said, and jumped out of bed. Torch in hand, I dashed into the yard. It was raining hard. Millie was not in her kennel. Then she yelped again from somewhere down the cliffs. I leaned over the edge and shone my torch into undergrowth but could not see her. The rain poured down harder, split with lightning. Over a clap of thunder, I heard another yelp. Again I aimed my light downwards. Something twinkled. There! The spangles on Millie's coat had reflected my light. While Joan stood on the edge holding the torch, I turned to face the cliff and began to pick my way down the wet rock face in my pyjamas. Several times I nearly slipped and fell, and cursing, dug my fingers and toes into niches in the rock. Finally, I reached the ledge on which Millie was trapped ten metres below. I pushed her limp, sodden body into my soaking pyjama top, buttoned her in, and clawed my way back up to the top. At last I reached the yard and stood exhausted, my chest heaving. We hurried inside, rubbed Millie down with a towel and gave her some hot milk. She had obviously been so frightened by the storm that she had squeezed under my wire barrier. Amazingly, she was not hurt, but next day she was as listless and distant as ever. One night soon after, we had a visit from Joe, an exuberant young dancing instructor friend. On impulse, Joe said, Come on, Millie, let's dance. Joe sprang from her chair and launched into a series of pirouettes and leaps around our lounge room. To my surprise, Millie lurched from her basket and began to shake and jump. Her gyrations were so uncoordinated that I thought for an instant she was having a fit. Then I realised with mounting astonishment that she was dancing. Her eyes shone like a puppy's. Her jaws opened in a doggy grin. With ears flapping and tail windmilling, she scampered round the room after Joe, expending more energy in a couple of minutes than she normally did in months. She's dancing, I laughed. Yes, Joe cried. Keep going, Millie. The excitement lasted only a few minutes before Millie climbed back into her basket and fell asleep. But I mused on the display all evening. She might have suffered cruelties or rejections in the past, but for one brief moment she had thrown off her sadness and celebrated the sheer joy of life. It wasn't much, but it was so out of character that it took on great significance and left us strangely moved and grateful like an old ballerina casting aside age and arthritis for one last performance, Millie had finally made an effort, it seemed, to give us a glimpse of what she had once been like. A few weeks later, Millie went off her food. The vet diagnosed an abscess under a tooth and recommended surgery. It was a big operation for an old dog, and she returned home more lethargic than ever. I moved her into my study so we could check on her at night. 
we tried feeding her milk with a syringe. Come on, Millie, Joan implored. But most of the milk trickled out of her mouth and she grew weaker. We took Millie back to the vet. His obvious concern showed he had also grown fond of her. She has an infection, he said. Her kidneys aren't coping. Unless she responds soon to antibiotics, I don't like her chances. Millie rallied slightly. A score of times each day she struggled to her feet and walked around us for a few minutes before collapsing again. She still refused food, and her ribs were beginning to show. Joan and I faced the prospect that after all we had done, Millie was slipping away. I found myself desperately hoping she could beat the odds. She went back to hospital for three more days. Then the vet called. I could put her on a drip, but it would only prolong her misery, he said. Take her home where she's happier and decide what's best. We collected Millie and had another sleepless night, getting up often to check on our patient. She was breathing with difficulty. By next morning, we had decided. We arranged to see the vet and took Millie on the car journey dog owners dread. Joan held Millie, unmoving and looking up at us, on her lap with the windows down. I want her to feel the wind in her hair, Joan said, and burst into tears. Someone should invent de-misters for driver's eyes too. I left Joan sobbing in the car while I carried our dog into the surgery. I felt as if I was betraying her. She had come to depend on us. The vet ushered me into his room and I placed Millie on a metal table. She lay on her side with her flank rising and falling rapidly as she clung to life. I put my face close to hers. She looked at me and managed a tail tremble. She won't feel a thing, the vet said as he loaded a syringe. He mumbled something about being sorry. Vets must hate this part of their jobs. It was over mercifully quickly, a patch of hair shaved above one small paw, the needle inserted, the plunger pushed down. Then Millie sighed and her breathing stopped. Goodbye, girl, I said. Her eyes were still open, but she could not see me any more. In the year we had Millie, she gave us a lot of work, cost us a lot of money, and finally brought us sorrow. Friends had warned us that her use-by date was well past. They were probably right, but once your heart has been touched, you've passed the point of no return. Millie was frail, old and ugly, but in an unexpected way, her gentleness and quiet dignity enriched our lives. And there was more to it than that. She showed us that however bad things get in life, there is always hope, always time for love and building relationships, always time for one last grab of happiness, one last dance. Looking back at the list of great dogs I've had, Millie earned herself a high place in it. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Music